reports, five pilots coming forward over the weekend saying they've had multiple mid-air encounters with high-flying, fast-moving objects. Well, two pilots reported an out-of-this-world sighting last month. They say they may have seen a UFO while flying over Arizona. The U.S. Navy is preparing new guidelines for pilots on how to report sightings of UFOs. A colorful graphic here that shows instances of bullshit like this are on the rise. I've seen The Exorcist about 167 times, and it keeps getting funnier every single time I see it. <laughs> <laughs> the government's out to get you. NASA's out to get you. The NSA's out to get you. Well, opinions are like assholes. Everybody has one. Police ask public not to shoot after recent Bigfoot sighting discussion we've been having lately about Bob Lazar and what he did at Area 51. We ain't found shit! Open the gates. Open the gates! They're here. You ever heard of, the, of a Daniel Merrick? The end of UFO secrecy. He's evidently got 20 years participated in a McMinnville, Oregon gathering of UFO enthusiasts. Mm, I, I think I have. I've heard of the McMinnville Festival and all that. Oh, stuff. okay. Okay, cool. It's not Dan Mesrick, is it? I don't think so. I don't see a Dan Mesrick on here. Okay. Um, let me see. Kevin, well, Kevin Day, UFOs observed on Navar, Navy radar systems, which is, again, here we go. Fucking yeah. Navy involved. Although I don't know why the Air Force is involved. I mean, I'm her in Air Force, but I hear more Navy than I do anything. Mm-hmm. You know, with the articles and stuff like that. Yeah. So, anyway. Well, hey, everybody. So, welcome to Strange Uncles. Um, you're listening to us kind of batter back and forth on, uh, I guess, alien talk. Sure. <laughs> yeah. For the most part. So, anyway. Um, I have actually a co-host in the in the room today. Um, John Finnegan. Welcome to Strange Uncles. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we're not going to get long and detailed on our love affair and how we found each other. <laughs> um, basically, you know, I stumbled on this guy. He liked the same weird shit that we do, and we just started kind of battering back and forth, and then voila, here we are. Yeah. Um, I think, but mo- mainly your forte is just mainly alien, kind of. That's kind of your background, or even though you're interested in other stuff, yeah, is that safe to say? Or I wouldn't necessarily even call it alien, mm-hmm. just uh, unidentified aerial phenomenon oh or if you want to say ufo right because i don't know if it's alien but i know there's some weird stuff in the skies that <laughs> no one knows what the hell they are still to this day yeah. um, and it seems so this is what this episode is going to be a little bit about um uh, we're going to do some talking back and forth about why the fuck is the news blowing up with ufos it seems like the last yeah. three, four, five months, mm-hmm. you know, from the Navy talk to everything else. So we're going to talk about a couple topics, a couple articles. Um, there's a new show that actually, uh, Finn, I think you had a chance to check out. I haven't seen it yet. Um, it just seems like this is just a, a, a resurgence of what's going on, which mm-hmm. is crazy. Um, and then to tie all that together, too, at the end of the podcast, um, I actually had, so for those of you who know, the follow took a road trip, about five days. Um, I bumped around uh, different places, uh, found a couple of haunted spots, this and that, did some recordings. The one thing I did have a chance to do uh, is record an interview with a Michael P. Masters. Michael P. Masters is an anthropology professor out of Butte, Montana, and he actually had a chance to, um, another one, the guy's just, he's got an amazing life. He's been on digs all over the, all over the world. Uh, but he wrote a book recently, and so we're going to talk about that book. We're going to talk about that interview um, towards the end of this. But uh, the beginning of it is just going to be us trying to figure out what the fuck is going on. Yeah. Because <laughs> I want to know, dude. Yeah, don't we all? Yeah, exactly. Never-ending search for what the fuck is going on. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> so um, let's start with this then. And this isn't really UFO alienish, but it does have something to do with space. A couple little space. Mm. And I don't know if you're familiar with them, but it, I wanted your opinion on them. One is kind of an oddball one and then there's something else that uh um that actually we're doing namely elon musk when i say we're uh, i don't know what the guy's up to 
And I guess I want your opinion on the whole thing, you know. He's up to all sorts of things. <laughs> that fucking guy. <laughs> you know what? I got a lot of respect for him because he accomplished yeah. a lot. But uh, I I don't want to use the word kook. Or maybe kook's a good word. I'm not too sure. I'm not sure. He's I, a smart kook. He's a smart kook. He's doing well. I think you know? I think smart kooks are important. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody needs at least one in their back pocket. Yeah. One way or another. Um, I came on this actually uh, last week, but a week and a half ago before I left on the road, and it kept popping up in the news feed here and there. Yeah, so I came across this one. Um, Something strange punched a hole in the Milky Way. Basically, this is what's going on. So it's a dense bullet of something. A researcher at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, and there's other people involved into it, but they basically presented something about the stellar streams and the lines of the stars and how the galaxies are aligned. Um, Something basically has created a, a just literally a gap, a hole, right in the middle of it and separated everything. They don't know where it's coming from. They call it a, a I think I would have used a different word, a large gape in the universe. <laughs> I, I, don't use that word, just in certain circumstances. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, stumble on that one. I don't know. Weird. Yeah. Just a hole in the middle of the that's Milky Way. That's what they're talking about. <clears throat> um, Could a... What could do that? I Well, that's what they're saying. They're talking about dark matter. You know, of course, we're still learning about dark matter. We found out that there is dark matter. We just don't know what the fuck it is mm-hmm. out there type thing. Um, so they're still laying into it and seeing going on up there. And, you know, I keep hearing, too, that the universe is expanding, which it is, yeah. I guess, yeah. right? Yeah. You know? Sure. Know, depending on what you're looking at. So, and here's one that I was talking about with Elon Musk, by the way. Again, yeah. Um, kook, but he's... A genius, you know, in his own route. Um, Have you heard about uh, the Starlink satellites? Again, I have have not. Okay. So this guy, basically, he threw up, um, you know, of course, you know, we all know Elon Musk. We all know Tesla. We all know the plants in Nevada. We all know the SpaceX and that he's trying to basically privatize space travel to a certain point and Mm -hmm. make it affordable for people and everything else. One thing that he did... Last week, as he launched these satellites, these Starlink satellites, mm-hmm. I actually did. <clears throat> I actually did see uh, oh some photos and heard tiny little bit about this. Yeah, well, this is just a start, um, and I can't remember the article. I think they launched sixty originally. Mm-hmm. Um, up in the sky, they all got their own propulsion. They're lining themselves up, then they're going to separate themselves out. But at the end of the whole reason for these is uh, he wants to provide Wi-Fi for the world. He wants to make sure everybody's linked up, uh-huh. and that's what these space links, that's what this does. It's a whole system of itself. But then again, you know, I hate to say that I get paranoid because when he's done doing these satellite launches, it's going to be in the thousands. And there's going to be thousands of these exact similar satellites all staged together like a big cloak yeah. surrounding the world. And this is what's going to feed us Wi-Fi or whatever else it's going to feed us. I don't know. Thoughts? I mean... It- it definitely it could be used for a lot of sketchy stuff, it seems like. That's like, the route I'm going. Like, I mean, yeah. yeah, you can use them for Wi-Fi or whatever, but what else can you use them for? Yeah. Spying on people? Uh, I mean... Well, we're already being spied on. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, but this is We have is the largest uh, NSA facility just yeah. 30 minutes south. Right, exactly. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Well, and on top of the fact, and I've said this before too, uh, we've got all kinds of things going out there in space. All the satellites are launched. Launches, we don't even know what's happening. I mean, there's things being launched every single day into space from somewhere. Yeah. And you really got to pay attention to what's going on because there's a lot of stuff going on up there. You know, between that, International Space Station, what they're involved in, what they're involved in launching, et cetera, et cetera. It's just a lot of things. Um, so there's like a lot some, of stuff in orbit too. I mean, well, it's dangerous tech. to navigate. I would you know, think through that. And that as stuff. we start getting better, well, that's the thing. And as we start getting better with space travel and we're actually out there and we're talking about these, eventually, you know, and if there is alien life, again, you know, hypothetically, could you imagine looking at our planet and seeing all the shit out there yeah, around our, Just uh, orbiting around the Earth, just a bunch of trash. But that's what we do. I mean, we kind of, we trash our planet. We're good at that. Oh. So yeah. we're, we're viruses. We really are. We're the only species on this planet that will change our environment to our liking mm-hmm. and destroy it to make sure that we're okay. Yeah. Instead of adapting to right, right. Yeah, we, what's we already adapt. there. Yeah, we yeah. don't do that. And no offense to humans, but we we suck. Yeah. No offense to humans. <laughs> Total yeah. offense to humans. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, it's just uh, it's interesting on the whole thing. I don't understand that, and uh, you know, it seems like there's all kinds of. 
you know, again, not only satellites being launched up every week, but all kind of different, even um, the Starlinks one, there's other ones that they work in tandem and, and what you can accomplish. And they're talking about this 5G thing rolling out. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, again, this is conspiracist talk, but, you know, peop- there's some people afraid of the 5G because really? of what it actually is and what it possibly can do. And it's not just, oh, cool, my phone's quicker. Yeah. There's more to it. Um, I don't know. You know, something you said about the Big Brother thing. Definitely. But um, one thing that we both kind of banter back and forth, and I think this is kind of your forte, Finn. Um, we, the Navy has been in the news recently. Yes. Quite a lot. Yeah. I think they first kind of came on the scene in 2017. I think New York Times posted an article about um, the Navy coming out, release uh, declassifying these videos. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one, the Tic Tac, off the coast of uh, California, Southern California. Like mm-hmm. I think it was 60 miles uh, outside of San Diego. Right. Somewhere with that. And, um, yeah, these, these uh, pilots were doing war games and practicing their maneuvers and everything, and the radar ship... Um, contacted them and said, you know, we're doing a real life thing here. There's, there's some type of thing showing up on our radar down here. We need mm-hmm. you to go check it mm-hmm. out. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, and yeah, what they encountered was some, what looked like a giant tic tac. Yeah. Uh, what did they say? Like forty feet wide. Forty to like ninety three or something. Yeah, they said those were, yeah, those were rough. Was, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and then yeah. on the radar, it actually looks at one point that it gets bigger instantly. Yeah. It goes from one size and then just instantly gets bigger. Right. And then accelerates at an impossible rate. Yeah. That would essentially yeah. kill a human. Well, just the Gs you're yeah, talking about. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. It's like we can't handle accelerating no, fast. I can't handle getting out of bed fucking fast, <laughs> let alone, you know, accelerating anything more than that. Yeah. Yeah, so, and that's awesome, dude. That's the whole thing. So that was, it was in 2017. Um, There's more to it. Some of this actually goes back, and um, a lot of the, the Nimitz was involved in that, right? Mm-hmm. The Tic Tac one? Yep. It was the, it was the USS, USS Nimitz. Yeah, and the air crew from the USS Theodore Roosevelt. Yes. 2014-2015 um, time frame. Mm-hmm. So that's what it was. And just to put, so basically, um, layman's on this. So, so over the past two years, the articles have built... I have built a picture of the UFO sighted in the encounters that they see um, to the fact that the Navy is rewriting their protocol and their procedures for their pilots on when they see these things. Mm-hmm. And, and how it, to report them. Right, yeah. exactly. And let's reiterate, too, we're not necessarily discussing aliens. We're just discussing the fact that there's UFOs. Mm-hmm. Something's being seen. We don't know where they're coming from. You know, they could be from intergalactic. They could be here. They could be our technology, Russia's technology. It, it, yeah, any, there's something. There's something invading our airspace. Right. There's which something there. Is potentially a threat to national security. Yeah. Well, of course. Um, and on top of just fucking shit in your pants when you see something like that. So, yeah. You know, Lieutenant. So here's an example. A Lieutenant Ryan Graves, a U.S. Navy FA-18 Super Hornet pilot, says object he saw in 2014-2015 that looked like a sphere encasing a cube. Uh, Commander David Fravor, in his 2004 sighting, said that the object he observed was around 40 feet long and oval in shape, which is the Tic Tac. Yeah. Um, There's numerous other reports on it. Uh, In other reports, Fravor says the object was the size of a Boeing 737, a commercial jetliner 100 feet long, and 93-foot long wingspan. Um, And here's an exact quote. It's randomly moving north-south, east-west, just random you know, just stopping, going the other direction, like you could do with a helicopter, but a little bit more uh, abrupt. And it looks like a 40-foot-long Tic Tac with no wings. What if it is real? Because I think it's real because I saw it. Um, and what if there's more of these? And what if we do nothing? Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Now, let me see. Another that they're wondering. So here's some points to take away from this. And I guess we can focus mainly on, not mainly on the Navy, but the Navy's the ones that are reporting this that's out they're the ones making the procedures mm-hmm. and and this is just one of the articles of all these encounters that now they're starting to release yeah they're starting to publish they're not hiding anything yeah. or maybe they are but they at least they're not hiding this yeah so things to take away from this um their questions and i guess our questions too uh whoever's controlling these things just might have access to navy communications and it speaks english so one last detail a tell on the part of the ufos is in fravor's story 
Fravor reports that operations officer on the USS Princeton uh, directed him to fly to a combat air patrol, or CAP, point 60 miles away. Within moments, the Princeton reported to Fravor that the UFOs were at his CAP point. What are the odds that the craft would pick up the CAP point of all places as a destination? But on the other hand, why would the objects want to be around a U.S. Navy fighter jet? Yeah. I and, mean, and I mean, and how, I think, how would they get from where they were to the cat point 60 miles away in right. a, a it, second, it, a it, few seconds? That's it, like in that amount of time. Frame, that's like yeah. 3,500 miles an hour. Right. Exactly. Like, I, I mean, well, huh? and, Tom, and so here's the thing. Okay. Let's, let's, let's theorize a little bit. So, say, for example, it's us. Or say it's you know it's our it's some kind of advanced weaponry something we designed human right? human okay yeah. and we're not saying us us but yeah human where it could be any country from any form mm-hmm. why the fuck are you flying it around navy aircraft carriers fighter jets like what would wouldn't that defeat the purpose to have some stealth technology that we're trying to test out yeah wouldn't you want to keep it away from your adversary. <laughs> way the fuck away from that. Yeah, so they wouldn't understand know that. that you had this right. type of technology. I mean, that's just me, but yeah. I, I mean, and that's also why I don't think it's from this world. Yeah. Personally, yeah. I mean, well, I don't... I that's kind of where I was going. I mean, you know, we've got some pretty crazy advancements, and I'm sure there's stuff that we have no idea that would blow our mind if we saw it. Oh, Just exactly. like, you know, when yeah. the, uh, what was it, the U2 back in the day. Mm-hmm. You know, when they were doing test runs over that, there was... Oh, it's quite Well, the whole... There was, uh, there was a ton of UFO sightings, but it was just... Right. That well, was, it was that our was spy U2. plane. Yeah, yeah. And it was what they built at Area 51. Exactly. I mean, that wasn't... And that's a whole thing with Area 51. It, it's not necessarily... You could you can believe maybe there's a crash UFO alien technology there, but really it started out that it was just a really hidden place to build a spy plane. Mm-hmm. That's how it started. Yeah. You know? They didn't and want anybody, know, anybody knowing about it. And yep. Which they did a good job with, for the most part. Yeah. You know, till now. You know, this is kind of where we're at. Um, well, you know, and Finn and I talk about this all the time. We're in a unique area. I mean, where we're at. You know, you look at the Uintah Basin and mm-hmm. the UFO reports. Are, oh, remind me, dude, to tell you about a book, too. You might have read it by someone on a book. Um, Uintah Basin, Nevada, mm-hmm. uh, Colorado, Wyoming. Colorado, there's, there's, there's a, uh, what is it? It's a valley in Colorado that is just report UFO sightings right and left in yeah. the histories of the same thing. All reports going hundreds of years back. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the name of that, but I know. Yeah. It, I, it's I a whole valley. And, yeah. We're going to look it up. It's, um, it's very interesting. Somebody actually built a, <laughs> an alien observatory out mm-hmm. there. She charges money for somebody to stand up on a fucking yep. metal stilt and stare at the sky. I'm going to admit you know? I would totally do it. Oh, I would. Too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As I fucking make fun of yeah, it. I'm when, like, when are we going? Yeah. This is fucking stupid. How much is it? Yeah. <laughs> fucking dumb. So, so it's it's cool because of the area. We have a lot of weird shit going on up here. We have a fucking base 70 miles west mm-hmm. that is a nerve agent gas base, basically. Yeah. You talked about NSA. We have Utah Basin. We have seeker bases in the Nevada. Not even Area 51. You know, there's other ones that are just pockmarked because oh, yeah. why? They're fucking remote. Yeah. You're not going to build something yeah, in downtown isolated. fucking New York City. Dulce, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Remote. Yep. You know, build something where it's out of mind's eyes. Um, it's getting harder to do nowadays. So as this comes out, I wonder, and they start having these reports and everything with these, like this Navy that we're talking about. Um, is it because they feel, and again, this theory, maybe they feel that it's inedible. They're kind of, look, it's going to be discovered one way or another. So let's play the game. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Not to beat on the Navy, but the Navy has all kinds of stories that are coming out. They did rewrite their protocol, or they are rewriting their protocol and what they what they have. They also have, uh, there's other ones here for quotes. Um, here's another one that was from uh, a guy called Lieutenant Graves. Lieutenant Danny Elkwin, another Super Hornet pilot, told the Times um, he interacted with UFOs twice. So the first time, and this is a quote, after picking up the object on, his, on my radar... Uh, I set the plane to merge with it, flying a thousand feet below it. It should have been able to see it with uh, my helmet camera, but I couldn't. Um, even though the radar told him it, was, it told me that it was there and that this is what we were saying. A few days later, I encountered the exact same thing in the exact same scenario when I was on a training missile flight. Um, that's another one that happened. So you know, and again, I guess my question is: Air Force isn't having this issue, Navy's having this issue, but you know, it still seems to be still seems to be an issue. Yeah, I mean. Just off the East Coast, they saw UFOs, or they saw crafts 
off the East Coast every day for two years. Oh, did they really? Yeah. Oh, crazy. Yeah. Um, it would, they were just always there. Well, look at some of the other encounters, too. And, and we can kind of banner back and forth on this. Because, and this is what I want to talk about because I know you have knowledge on this. Look at, like, uh, the Phoenix Lights mm-hmm. that happened in, was it 97? 97. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that, hundreds of people report and seeing this exact same thing. I mean, going it traveled on. basically from Vegas all the way mm-hmm. down to Tucson. Yeah. A yeah. giant and they craft tracked that it. people described as the size of a three or four aircraft carriers. Yeah, yeah all lined huge. up. And I think it was like a V-wing or some mm-hmm. shit like that that they described it yep. to be. Have you seen that documentary, by the way? Because there is a documentary. I've seen there. a couple of them. Yeah. 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 Okay. And, and it's it's very interesting for the most part. It's fascinating. Um, it, it just, like, I mean, what, God, what could that possibly be? Yeah, exactly. I mean, in my mind, there's no way that we could build something like no, on that massive scale, that's the problem. Um, and I think there's something to be said about that too when we look at technology and where we're at and what we're seeing. You know, and again, you know, the votes out whether it's us or whether it's somebody else. But um, you know, needless to say, it's just you know, it's it's absolutely one of those things. Um, remember, I told you to remind me to tell you about a book that yes. I discovered. Okay, yes. so this is a recommendation that um, actually I had during my trip. And, of course, you know, I spent a couple nights. I camped one night. And, and guess what I did, Finn, when I camped? What did you do? I stared at the fucking sky. Exactly. Hoping I was going to see something, <laughs> yeah. you know. It was pretty black. I was in an area that was kind of not a lot of light pollution. Um, unfortunately, didn't see anything. Yeah. You know, I passed out. I had too many beers, whatever. But uh, it, still, you know, whenever you're out and about, that's the first yeah. thing my neck goes up. I mean, more often yeah. than not, you're never going to see anything. But Yeah, but when you do. If you're not looking up. You're never going to see it. That's exactly it. And people don't look up anymore. They look down on their fucking Mm -hmm. phones nowadays. You know, so what are you going to do? We saw them all the time growing up as a kid. But there was a... So when we go back, for those of you who remember, I did a a couple of different episodes in revolving the um, Skinwalker Ranch. Okay, Mm -hmm. So I did the first one uh, that was mainly the history and what had happened with the Shermans and and everything else. Um, Also did another one that was kind of chasing the money. You know, what Bigelow was, money he put into it. And if you remember Bigelow, John Bigelow um, is the millionaire, billionaire, billionaire actually, yeah. that uh, invested into this. And he's probably, when we were talking about this earlier, he's probably one of the guys that has more money invested into paranormal research in general. Not just UFO, but lately, as of lately, I think that's where he's focused. Mm. But starting NIDS uh, with the Skinwalker Ranch, everything else, just millions of dollars pumped into that. Oh, yeah. Well, there was another one when we talked about that area in Skinwalker, and it was actually written in 1971, and there's a revision that was recently, I think in 2004. And tell me if you heard of this book, because I ordered it on Kindle, and it's a good read so far. So, Utah UFO Display, a scientific brings reason and logic to over 400 sighting in Utah's Uinta Basin. Yep. That's the name of it. Have yep. you heard about that? I have. Okay. I have. Have I you read it? I haven't read it, but okay. I, I'm pretty sure my friend actually has that book. Yeah, I, I just, it, it, number one, it's amazing for what it was. Um, evidently, so he got together and he cataloged everything. Mm-hmm. All these sightings, he went and talked to people, and he co-wrote it with somebody else that was uh, a local, um, I think a Roosevelt resident, which sits really close to Fort Duchesne, yeah, which is where Skidwalker is. Ne- it's the next Next biggest town, town kind of, right? Yeah. Right, exactly. Um, so say, basically, a noted scientist, Frank B. Salisbury, in cl- uh, collaboration with Joseph Jr. Hicks, who's the other guy I was talking about, uh, tries to answer this question by examining UFO data in the context of modern science. Um, very interesting because it really is, again, over 400 sightings. It's cataloged, um, described what they are. And then his new version. So he, again, re, um, to include a chapter two uh, directly about the Skinwalker Ranch. And what that involvement was, aerial phenomena from that area, yeah. what's going on. But that's kind of like, that's going to be my new read. I'm going to get doing that yeah, and see what it yeah. what it says. But um, but anyway, it was pretty amazing. I'm um, talking about books. This is one thing that we were kind of leading into. So one thing that I had a chance to to actually do, um, it was it was last day of the trip. Uh, I was shooting through Montana on the way back down here to Salt Lake City. Um, I got a hold of a guy. I stumbled on the internet, which don't ask me how because I don't know how I do these things. When you type in like weird shit in Montana, weird things to see, I found radon mines that you can tour that are opened up just outside of Butte, like 40 miles up in the mountains. There's these old plutonium radon mines that they're hazardous. I was about to say, are those safe to be but walking around? That's what they said. <laughs> but these companies own them, and these older, mainly senior citizens mm-hmm. will make trips up there three or four days at a time and go in and out of the caves three or four times a day on whatever their legal dosage is. 
And according to them, it makes them feel fantastic. Really? And it extends their lives. I... I, that's not what I understand about radon. I feel like it would do the exact opposite. <laughs> I feel like something would drop off. <laughs> yeah. I, that's just me. But uh, I stumbled on that. I didn't have a chance to go out there. But close to that area, there's a town called Butte, Montana. Um, actually, pretty big city. Big mining town. Basically, it's got a lot of history to it. Um, stumbled on a guy uh, by the name of Michael P. Masters. He actually is an uh, anthropology professor for uh, Butte, Montana. And uh, he actually teaches Montana Tech. I uh, had a chance to kind of banter with him back and forth, and, and he was gracious enough to to allow an interview uh, with Strange Uncles, and um, and that's what's coming up next. Um, pretty amazing guy. Uh, I'm going to go ahead. We're going to take a segue and then come back and do an intro and bring him on board. Um, great interview. A great book that he has written, and he's gotten a lot of uh, a lot of publicity so far. So, you know, I wish him the best. On top of the fact that he has, uh, he has an album, little band that he has, and he plays a fucking mean mandolin, I'll tell you. So just a very eclectic individual. Great to have him on. And uh, right after the break, um, we'll bring him on. Stand by. (laughs) Open the gates to all things strange, weird, and eclectic. Welcome to the world of Strange Uncles. You can find us on all podcast platforms from iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can also find our website, mystrangeuncles.com. There we have all of our podcast releases, along with some articles and write-ups and recordings that we do. You want to get a hold of us? Feel free to. You can write us at strangeuncles at gmail.com, or you can call us at 801-252-6945. Call us for any encounter, strange occurrences, anything you or your family have uh, been part of, and or if you want a topic of us to cover, please feel free to reach out. We'd love to have you aboard. Just make sure that you wipe your feet before you step in our reality and muck up our world. Close the gates. <laughs> so coming up next is an interview that I was just uh, so gracious to be able to have uh, with the one Michael P. Masters. Uh, Michael P. Masters is a professor at Montana Tech in Butte, Montana. His new book, Identified Flying Objects, A Multidisciplinary Academic Approach to the UFO Phenomenon, Uh, was released in March. His book cautiously examines the premise that UFOs and aliens may simply be our distant human descendants, using the anthropological tool of time travel to visit and study us as members of their own hominin evolutionary past. It was great to interview him, fantastic individual, and he even has a sideband, by the way, which uh, we'll have actually on the end of this episode as well. We'll throw a song in there. So without further ado, welcome Michael P. Masters. Open the gates. I see you at the top of the stairs. Well, Michael P. Masters, welcome to Strange Uncles, first of all. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, yeah. In my um, office, no less. This is the first time <laughs> I've ever I've ever done this. It's nice, great. Nice. Yeah. Well, you know, first of all, so some background for the audience. Um Actually, I stumbled on, on you, Michael, because I was looking up on this road trip some just eclectic things to see and kind of take care of. Um, and your name popped up with a book, which we will get into. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the, the first thing I just want to your job, your title, what you do, you kind of want to explain how you kind of how you got to the point you are here now in Butte. Right. I'm a professor of biological anthropology here in Butte, Montana, um, at Montana Tech specifically. And started out in physics and astronomy at Ohio University, where I did my undergraduate, and then uh, shifted into anthropology around late in my sophomore year, mm-hmm. and just took it from there. Uh, really glad I did. It's been great. Got yeah. to travel a lot, um, work at different dig sites in South Africa, France, throughout yeah. Ohio, here. Um, we have a couple digs that we do. And... Um, yeah, to, even beyond the travel, it's just a, an interesting field, uh, investigating our origins and human evolution and cultural change mm-hmm. and uh, teach a number of different classes related to anthropology. Forensic anthropology is a popular right. one here. Um, a culture change and global development class that looks at macroeconomics and right. uh, development's effect on cultural groups, things like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty variable. Humans are complex animals, so we have Agreed. to come at it from a lot of different ways. And that yeah. provides a lot of opportunities to research 
different aspects of humanity in different right. ways. Yeah. Societies in general have just amazed me. Yeah. You know, and different ones, you know, it, as small as this world is, which in reality is pretty small, it's big at the same time, but right. you have all these different cultures and these breakoffs and how people got to where they're at. So anthropology has always fascinated me just for that reason. Yeah. You know, absolutely. so talk about, I, I've got a quick question for you. So you mentioned you were on some, some excavations and some digs. Mm-hmm. One that I stumbled across was, um, one you did in South Africa. Is that correct? That is correct. Makapan's got was the name of that one. Okay. It, uh, it's an early Australopithecine site. We're specifically mm-hmm. looking for Australopithecus Africa. Conus, which is that skull right there. Okay. Um, I just now noticed all your skulls. Yeah, third, third one from the left there. Uh, that's well, what we were looking for. There's been a number of them found in that area. Sturkfontein, huh. Swartzkrans, Makapanska. Sure. And it's actually a World Heritage site. Um, it's been on TV a bunch. National Geographic mm-hmm. came there and did mm-hmm. some things. But it, it was a, it was wow. an amazing site to work. Um, we it, it was one of the last... Uh, old growth forests in South Africa. It's beautiful waterfalls mm. and undulating mountains wow. and wildlife everywhere, including spiders and scorpions, unfortunately, <laughs> but yeah, black mambas and puff yeah. adders and yeah. leopards. And, but wow. no, it was, it was a really, really cool place to work. Did two summers down there. That's neat. Now, so when you do these, these digs or when you just your field in general, and um, was it last year or the year before they discovered the what they call the Hobbit race, or the, the that was in um, yeah Flores, the island of Flores. Yeah, it's a uh, second one from the right there. Oh, okay. tiny you got skull. that one too. Yeah, does that amaze you that we're still finding these things? It does. Yeah, I mean, like you said, the world's big and small at mm-hmm. the same time. Um, there's still a lot of undiscovered areas. There's a lot of um, places where we just haven't dug yet yeah um, yeah at the same time there's always a swimming pool going in somewhere right uh somebody right. pulls out something and you know there's a lot of caves have already been mm-hmm. explored so yeah it does kind of amaze me that we still find these the a really important one not far from where we were in makapan scott is the um, uh the homo nalidi the that okay. uh, was just came out a couple years ago um and in that one was the same thing, just a really hard to get to wow. area. They, they had to hire very small people. They put a call out to uh, for, for archeologists, um, mostly small slender women sure. is, is what they ended up <laughs> working with. Um, right. And they had to crawl back through these tiny little openings, hmm. slither through and, uh, and do their excavations there. But you know, those places still exist. There's yeah. still undiscovered cave sites like that. So I right. think we'll still continue to get new information come out and every time we find something it adds to our knowledge of the past but these ones that sort of challenge the existing models or at least help evolve it Mm -hmm. uh, because science is an evolving pursuit Um, i think it's really interesting when those things happen i think it's amazing when those things happen especially in this day and age you know 2019 and we're still stumbling on ourselves in a way you know and i'll say it i've said time and time again on the podcast so don't email me anybody um, as smart as we are, we're still really dumb, you know, as a people. Oh, yeah. It, it yeah. just on different facets, and, and it just amazes me. But um, number one, so the whole, the digs you've been on, the research that you've done, is, it's very, I, I mean, I mean it's, it's amazing, actually. It's a life that I wouldn't mind living, to be honest with you. It's kind of impressive. Um, but the main reason that I have you here is because of a book that you recently wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, and let me see the title here. So, Identified Flying Objects, A Multidisciplinary Scientific Approach to the UFO Phenomenon. Is that correct? It is correct, First yes. of all, what is up with that title? Because it's pretty long. <laughs> well, it's a title and a subtitle. Oh, okay. Identified okay. Flying Objects is just the title of the book. Gotcha. But the subtitle, I feel, is important because in saying identified flying objects, yeah, it's, it's, it's changing um, unidentified, mm-hmm. obviously, mm-hmm. to identified. Which was done for two reasons. One, um, because in, in trying to provide a, a scientific explanation for these things, it doesn't mm-hmm. make sense to continue calling them unidentified, but also just mm-hmm. to have a different word to rebrand it. Because um, certain words right. have fallen right. by the wayside or have been stigmatized, like mm-hmm. alien, UFO, mm-hmm. are quintessential examples. So by slightly modifying the word, but still keeping something that's understandable and, and well known. Hopefully, you know it's an attempt to try to get back 
some sure. some value and being able to talk about it and escape right. some of the stigma. So um, identified flying objects is the title, but then it, it is a multidisciplinary approach. It ties together astrobiology, physics, astronomy, and obviously anthropology. And I, I feel it's important to have that on there. So yeah, if you say the whole thing, it sounds pretty long, but um, <laughs> I think it's important for people that are just scrolling through Amazon or find the right. website to understand what it's about. And that it is a very scientific approach. The specifics to it. Yeah. yeah. And it, it brings together right. these different fields. So, Well, how long did you work on the book? Uh, seven years. So, wow. Started writing it in October of 2012. Okay. I approached one of my research assistants and told him about it and asked if he'd be interested in, in helping out mm -hmm. you know, doing some early research and um, yeah, it was above one of our, our local breweries here in town in yeah. October 2012. <laughs> I remember it very well. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah, that's neat. Um, so here's another million-dollar question for you, and I'm going to let you kind of explain the synopsis of the book because I, I want it in your words more than anything. Sure. And this yeah. is where I stumbled on it, and I was like, this is very – when we talk about UFOs, we talk about this. And you're right. It, it's it, it's so – stigmatized nowadays it's so generic it's getting better though it especially with better. all these things coming out from the navy and oh, the boy. defense department it's that. starting to get normalized a yeah. little bit well and it's the good. thing is what's weird about the government navy for example it was released what two months ago three months ago and now mm. they can't quit talking about it yeah exactly. now no nobody's shutting up about new it. new york times just had a, something to be yeah, said. An article a couple of days ago yeah yeah it's great to see um but but you're right it is to some extent still in that fringe area and that's True. a big reason yeah. I, I wanted to write this book and why it took seven years is I wanted to do it right I wanted to make sure that there was integrity and mm -hmm. that it, it maintained a very scientific approach but was also readable to anyone there's pretty complex yeah. things related to physics astrophysics quantum mechanics sure um, human evolutionary anatomy stuff but it's all presented in a way that anybody can easily read it and understand mm -hmm. what's being said. So uh, the last two years was really just editing, peer review yeah. and editing, making sure that everything was legit and making sure that you find that medium where my scientific colleagues can still read it and, uh, and understand mm -hmm. sort of the critical approach and, and more of the, the esoteric jargon, I guess, that's indicative of our fields, but also um, being able to have anybody read and understand it. Um, right. But the main, yeah, the main, uh, the main theme or the model that's presented is it's also important to acknowledge that it's testable. It's a testable hypothesis. I was going to ask that. Okay. Yeah. I think okay. that's one thing that also separates it and makes it more valid as a scientific approach because a hypothesis has to be testable, falsifiable yeah. and repeatable. Right. So right. having a falsifiable theory already lends it credence among mm -hmm. my academic colleagues. But the, the mm -hmm. main, and the reason why it's testable is the main thesis is that the UFO phenomenon and these alien beings that are reported are simply us in the future coming back through time to study us in their own evolutionary past. And looking at this, at this series of skulls and just understanding that the two main changes that have taken place since we stood up and became bipedal, mm -hmm what happened is that our heads had to rotate down in order to see where we were going. Mm -hmm. You stand a chimpanzee up there looking at the sky. Our heads had to rotate down, and that caused a flexing of the cranial base. And that process, if you can imagine holding two ends of a slinky and pulling the face down and then the, the posterior cranial right, base right. forward, it, it bows out. It makes yeah. this kind of bulbous shape on the top, and that largely contributed to our larger brain. So that process of increased brain development also coincided with the reduction in our facial our facial anatomy uh, reduced and retracted it got smaller and moved under the expanding brain and in fact we're the only mammal with that craniofacial configuration where our brains sit out over top of our eyes so looking at those two main changes that characterize the whole of hominin evolution even outside of anything related to what might happen in the future. Do mm -hmm. we blow each other up and live underground or in space or on Mars? None of those things matter. I don't speculate yeah. about what factors may contribute to certain traits, but rather just highlight the six to eight million year continuous change in these craniofacial features. If those are continued forward, we would expect to see something that looks very, very similar to what are so commonly reported and these abduction accounts and other instances of close encounters. So that leads me to this question. Time. When you look at evolution of where we were 
and what we are. Mm-hmm. And again, we're going on the theory that we did, we we change. We, we it was this isn't. We're not discussing Adam and Eve type scenario. We're discussing evolution. Yeah, just, from point A yeah, to point B. Evolutionary change. Sure. When we look at where we're at now, to what your hypothesis would be of us in the future, and this is what we're saying. What's that timeline? Do you have an idea? Um, well, it's complicated by a couple of different things. If all I could really base it on, and this is just speculation, there's mm-hmm. no way that I can know this, but the rate of our technological change, how long might it take before we unravel the mysteries of time and are capable of building a time machine? What I argue in the book is that these IFOs, as I call them, are the time machine themselves. Mm-hmm. We have this idiom okay. in biology that form follows function, and the form of these craft uh, seem to have the function of bending space-time and creating mm-hmm. closed time-like curves. And I go into much more detail in the book about how that takes place. And it's not its not any sort of fringe belief. It's all valid scientific research in modern physics sure. and drawing out this history since Einstein um, published his paper on general relativity and all the specific solutions to his field equations that followed have demonstrated consistently that some sort of highly energetic or massive rotating disk solenoid sphere um, is able to create this lens theorem effect or this uh, this uh, oh. f- this warping of space-time sure. that reorients light cones toward the past and allows an individual in theory to travel into the past so yeah. so in looking at the form of these craft they seem to have all of those characteristics a um, a disc-shaped object with symmetry that that rotates that's highly electromagnetic mm-hmm. um, which is an important component and we know that because a lot of the encounters um, they specify that, yeah. that you know radio is not working electronics not working whatever have you across the board yeah, yeah. The, yeah. And, and UFO detectors for whatever they're yeah. worth is the same thing <laughs> it picks up this electromagnetic right. even after the craft has been long gone yeah compasses spin wildly there's right. there's clearly an electromagnetic aspect to them, which is likely their propulsion system mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Um, the electromagnetic force is 10 to the 40 times stronger than gravity. So that force, harnessing that force allows you to manipulate a craft without rockets and vector based right. propulsion. But it's probably also important for as a substitute for the gravitational aspects of warping space-time. The, mm-hmm. A black hole, for instance, it's one of the only things in nature where time reverses inside the event horizon of a black hole. And, and so mimicking those things with electromagnetism rather than gravity would get around some problems like a singularity or sure. the, the tidal forces ripping you apart, for well, instance. Now, when you talk about that, is there where does quantum physics stand? in this conversation because they uh, there was an experiment that, that was done I think a month ago a month and a half ago why they witnessed and it was time travel to a certain point but it basically went back to its original form it, nanoseconds had happened but mm-hmm. still it happened yeah. so technically we're seeing something in quantum physics that can help explain that is that where do you stand with that well before we really understand time and especially time travel all physicists would agree that there's going to have to be a melding of general relativity with quantum mechanics Mm -hmm. um this sort of grand unified theory i guess you could say but it is it's very important and i talk about it quite a bit in the book uh, experiments especially related to um causality and um what happens when an object an entity a person, anything goes into the past. Mm-hmm. And a lot of research in quantum physics has shown that there's an inherent self-consistency, that you don't have to worry about this butterfly effect or entering a new dimension or a new universe or the universe having to correct for something mm-hmm. because by visiting the past, it's non-disruptive. Anything that you did in that past has already happened before you even go back to do it. Right. So it, there's an inherent self-consistency that's maintained simply as a result of the way time exists in this in this block universe and mm-hmm. block time, mm-hmm. and and one of my favorite researchers, Igor Novikov, who actually developed the self consistency principle, and has become sort of the the standard among physics researchers who study these things, um, points out that in the presence of a time machine, you can't differentiate between a past, present, and future. They're all 
together. Co-mingled. Yeah, of, exactly. Of yeah. So we, we think of time as being this linear thing, this mm -hmm. arrow of time, and that's simply because of how we perceive it as biological organisms with consciousness. But in the context of physics, it, these processes are time reversible. They make just as much sense running from future to past as past to future. Mm -hmm. And then in looking at the modern physics research and, and quantum mechanics, there's been a lot of studies that have been done that show that this this consistency is maintained. So I, I think mm -hmm. quantum mechanics is very important uh, for understanding those aspects of it, but but also even beyond that, it may be important for creating a time machine itself, you know, right. figuring out how we actually do this uh, at some point in the future. Interesting. Well, and here's another question for you. <clears throat> Why? Why would we do that? Do you think if this is this is the case and this is us coming back in time mm -hmm. to research, investigate, whatever it may be, don't you, how do I word this? Don't you think that we already had that history? Say we fast forward, we can look back and see just like what we're doing now with excavations, whatever mm -hmm. have you were physically. So are we doing it because we lost that info or are we doing it just because we can? What do you suppose that theory stands like? Well, I think it, it depends on which time period you're talking about. And, and it comes back to your question of when we might be doing this. Mm -hmm. There isn't much incentive for us, even if we develop this technology in the next 500 years, if we have archived records and we have video and mm -hmm. photographic documentations of things, what's the incentive? We wouldn't right. expect to see people that look so much like us because they may still have access to that information. You get much deeper into the future, the, just as an aspect of time we, we run into this in archaeology sure. all the time the farther back in time you go the less information there is it's just mm -hmm. part of right. the process right um and that goes for anything so we may be seeing more future looking humans simply because they are the only ones that are far enough away in our future that it's worth coming back to study us in the past and why would do it it, it it's exactly what I would do if I had this mm -hmm. technology, these That's, abduction reports, I, say, yeah, you know, I would, I, I would love to have a time machine. And, and looking yeah. at these skulls, all, yeah. all we have are the fossilized remains of our ancestors' skeletal anatomy and their dental anatomy. Mm -hmm. But if I could go back and, and collect DNA and right. tissue samples, it, it could be a big part of the whole anal probe aspect yeah. that they're collecting fecal samples. There's a lot of information yeah. you can get from poop. And when we find fossilized poop or... I mean, that sounds um, strange, but you're 100% you're right. Yeah, that's how we know that Neanderthals yeah, consumed yeah. six to 7,000 calories per day, mostly right. meat, as we found their poop. Mm -hmm. And we can learn a lot from that. So yeah. the things that are reported in these abduction accounts are exactly what I would do as a paleoanthropologist if I had access to this technology. So... Right. Um, yeah, I think I think a big part of it is scientific research, at least the interactions. Mm -hmm. I also think that a, a big part of it might be time tourism, that they're not going to you know pop down and start snapping pictures. But the, right. the ones you see kind of hovering at the edge of clouds sure. that are in formations, those very well could be people who paid an exorbitant amount of money to, to go back to, come to the past. And it might help yeah. explain things like the Foo Fighters during World War II or why there's so many sightings around major historic and prehistoric mm -hmm. sites or during important times in history is that there's more demand. Why we started seeing things when we started uh, messing with atomic energy. Mm -hmm. There yeah. was a lot of sight sightings that came oh, out. Oh, yeah, World War all there. over nuclear silos. Um, yeah. and yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, how far back do you suppose if you have to? I mean, obviously, you're well in tune with, you know, I don't stories and, and encounters, but, uh, you know, it, it's everything from if you read the book of Ezekiel in the Bible, it's reported that he sent you know, possibly it's a UFO. Mm -hmm. um, there's reports of UFOs from the 17th century. There's cave paintings, yeah. petroglyphs of sorts. Do you think that that's all kind of interwoven into this? I do. Yeah. And it also, I think, lends credence to this extra tempestrial model. I refer mm -hmm. to them as extra tempestrials in the book, replacing tear for earth with the root for time. Um, and, and yeah, it would help explain why there's consistently throughout history and prehistory these same reports is that if we're visiting the past mm -hmm. from likely different points in our future, sure. but we'd still have these, these large headed, large eyed, small faced characteristics, and we'd be coming down from the sky and these disc shaped craft, um, those are going to be enumerated in, in various ways, either through the cave paintings, the petroglyphs, mm -hmm. or uh, historical accounts, um, more recently in photographs and, and people's abduction reports and things like that. But I think they're probably 
collecting data from as many points in time as they can. That's what right. we do in in paleoanthropological research and archaeological research is we try to sample as many different periods as possible because it paints a clearer picture of culture change and our right. evolutionary history. Us so we know we can lay that line out a little bit more. Yeah, more and accurately. I, I imagine there's probably a limit to how far back they can go just based on uh, certain aspects of, of speed, sure. uh, how fast you can travel while your light cones are reoriented toward the past. I go into more detail about that in the book, but I, I assume they're also constantly trying to push that back and, and mm-hmm. find new ways to um, modify their craft in order to get that extra data just, just a little like what bit. What we're doing farther. now, it, it's you know, it's improvement. Yeah, you, know, you have every look how tinkering. long we've yeah, exactly tinkering. Yeah. That's a, a key word to that. Um, so let me and you think that they're coming from Earth? Yeah, you think we're not colonizing somewhere else and coming back? We think we're still here and we're still making this function. Yeah, maybe. I mean, at least for a while. That I can't really say for sure. It's just speculation at that point. Um, But yeah, you know, maybe we develop the ability to build uh, habitation sites on the moon Mm. or at Mars seems a little out of reach and unnecessary. But um, (laughs) no, I think we're still on Earth and in the same way that we exist here mm-hmm. in the same space as our ancestors who existed right. thousands, tens of thousands, even you know, 10 minutes ago, there's somebody in this area and I don't see them now because sure. it was a different point in time. But yeah, they're probably living, working, playing in these same spaces as you and I right now, just at a, a distant point in the future. And we know the timelines change. They've been changing. You know, we find out things that were 10,000 years old or 50,000 years old, whatever have you. It's every day yeah. there's something else that, you know, clues us into that knowledge. Um, all right. So to wrap up real quick, and I had basically, number one, the book, I, I can't wait. I, I try to get it again from Kindle. <laughs> it wouldn't work. I think I'm actually going to order it um, and do it. But your time and just the time for this, the idea and the theory behind it, number one, is is just fucking fascinating, if you ask me. Yeah, I, it makes a lot of sense. And, and it, it helps account for a lot of the different aspects of the, the ties phenomenon. Ties together. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, there's always... I don't claim to have all of the answers by any mm-hmm. means, and there's mm-hmm. certainly things that I may have overlooked or you know, uh, other aspects mm-hmm. of things that could be going on that we just can't understand from our current point in time. But, sure. but in general, uh, an extra tempestrial model, yeah, ties a lot of things together and at least offers a, a valid explanation for right. them. Anything in your future as far as other research when it deals with the paranormal or the strange or the odd, anything that... that is interest you or something that's on your mind that you want to yeah. see the thought of or yeah just um just agreed this week uh earlier this week to co-author a book about consciousness and mm. look into telepathy remote viewing um i'm actually writing a story on remote dreams viewing. oh are you really yeah, that's yeah, awesome yeah, it's, it's a really interesting thing and and uh, certain people's abilities it, it kind of falls into this taboo fringe thing but i I think there's also ways to investigate it scientifically looking at functional mris and differences between a control group and these group groups of people that have these abilities or um and when you're actually researching it like that i think you're taking the stigma away you're making it you're bringing in a a, an approach that makes sense to most people and it doesn't look like it's a it's a, a a witchy crafty type thing that right. you know to some people to the outside viewers yeah it follows the scientific method and i think that's important and it makes it harder for my academic colleagues to mm-hmm. criticize it it's, it's mm-hmm. anti-science at that point if someone sure. just because someone's exploring something strange or unknown and there has been stigma attached to it mm-hmm. if they're doing it right and they're following the guidelines of science and the mission of science then they're at fault the, the, yeah, the, exactly. the onus is on them sure. because they're denying what science is yeah. to push knowledge forward and to move right. our understanding collectively forward. So having that open mind. Yeah. So yeah. it's been like that with the book too. It's, it's a very grounded, reserved approach to this mm-hmm. that shouldn't really piss off scientists because it, it follows how we investigate. But things. you know, it will, you know, there's going to be some apples in the basket, sure, sure. Just, just like anything. Yeah, no, I know. But if they open the book and get a sense of what's being presented and how it's being presented and mm-hmm. how it was researched, there's really not many things that they can yeah. be angry about. Yeah. One final question for you, mm-hmm. being that you are um, a professor of anthropology and everything else that you've traveled. 
Bigfoot. No, no. You knew this was coming. <laughs> it's actually not been something I've been asked a lot, no. uh, surprisingly, because okay. that's what we do. I. You know? That's why I asked. Yeah. 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 No, it's funny. Um, <clears throat> yeah, Bigfoot. <laughs> it, it's kind of like the whole extraterrestrial thing. You know, there's there's so much space. And how do we investigate all of that space? Right. How do we look at all of it? And 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 unlike this extra tempestrial model where there's a specific point in time where this theory would be proven or falsified, mm-hmm. um, we don't have that with, with Bigfoot. We also don't have any um, history of skeletal remains that right. lead up to the present. And, and we have a lot of archaeological sites all throughout these areas mm-hmm. where Bigfoot supposedly lives. You'd expect to find those. You'd expect to see I would think skeletal something. anatomy that's indicative of a previous hominin form uh, right. with larger bone structures and a very, very definable face, sure. facial sure. characteristics. But um, because we don't have that, but the big thing for me, even beyond you know the footprints and not having the skeletons, is the fact that all primates are innately social and curious Mm -hmm. other than you know the orangutan and some others but but even they come out of the woods they're they're referred to as the old man in the forest because they would come out and try to look at humans and see what we were doing you'd think that a a hominin form like this that's so similar to us that's bipedal and has a larger social interaction they'd come out of the woods yeah yeah. we'd see them digging through our dumpsters or trying to sit down and eat with us at dinner because we are innately social Mm -hmm. and curious Mm -hmm. so we are the fact that you don't see that happening all over if they exist in large enough numbers that they can find each other to reproduce more Bigfoots or big feet. I don't know what you'd call (laughs) them. Footlings. Yeah, little footling babies. Um, There'd have to be enough of them to continue the population, and therefore you'd expect that there's enough of them that you would see them coming out and investigating us in the same way that we're trying to investigate them. And that's kind of my similar argument, too, with everything. You just classified as, where's the skeletons? Where's Mm -hmm. the remains? Where are we? You know, yeah, granted, we still, you know, the Oxbow Wilderness. You know, there's still places up there that you can't really physically get to sure. well they're up there but i you know i've seen some pictures i've seen some encounters but it's just it's one thing i've wanted to ask you because this is your field mm-hmm. and so when you look at something like that the same thing with the nephilims for example um that were back in history they're the giants that yeah, okay. supposedly they existed and they're they're 10 feet tall and there's been pictures of skeletal remains but nah you know yeah. I'm, I'm the, the jury's out on that one right you know, so i hadn't heard of that but it seems unlikely <laughs> just based on I would what think we know so. of human evolution. And, yeah. I mean, unless there was a rare genetic mutation. I mean, in the same way that you can have these hobbits. Sure. Uh, yeah. Island dwarfism. You could right. have some sort of rare genetic mutation that yeah. affects a small their, community. Yeah. yeah and it, it works for them and it, it yeah. perpetuates through time. But yeah, we'd have. I feel like I would have known about that right. if we really yeah. had giants. <laughs> not, not Goliath. Of all <laughs> right. right. Anyway, um, well, fantastic. Uh, anything you want to promote or talk about or anything to that? Um, yeah, if any of your listeners are in the greater Los Angeles area, I'll be presenting a talk at the MUFON conference, the oh, 50th anniversary. I'm on the fence of going to that. Now I probably come. should go. You should come. I think it's going to be a great uh, event. It's the 50th. For God's sakes, yeah, you know. Yeah, it's, you're right. And the whole theme is looking back, but also looking to the mm-hmm. future, uh, which I think is why they asked me to present. Um, I'll be there. I think July 24th through 26th. Um, my specific talk time, I believe, is at 4:20. Okay. So some of your listeners may appreciate that. I am a proud MUFON card carrying member. Awesome. Might I? Add. Yeah, <laughs> so, that's great. Yeah, yeah. 4:20 on Saturday is when that happens. Uh, I'm also be presenting at the International UFO Congress in Phoenix, which I think is in early September. I think I've heard about that one too. I've been, yeah, it's been a pretty looking. big. It's a pretty big conference. Sure. Um, kind of like MUFON. It's more science. Right. Uh, it's a more grounded approach right. to understanding this phenomenon. Um, and they just changed the venue to this really great hotel in downtown Phoenix. So oh, cool. um, that should be a, a great event. I believe that's September 4th through the 8th. Yeah, that's another one I'm, I'm toying with. But I'm really, me and a, a friend of mine who I met, um, worth contemplating doing a, a trip to L.A. Yeah. So, and by all means, if I'm there. I will shake your hand proudly. That would be so, awesome. Yeah, yeah, it'd be great to hang out, have beer down there. Yeah, uh, yep. I believe the venue is only about a mile from the beach too. So yeah, it's a, it's a good area. Yeah, it's a really good area. I've never been. I, we just uh, yeah. I just got back from a book tour where the farthest south we went was Big Sur, 
which is a super cool area too. Um, yeah. then we kind of worked up the Oregon coast sure. to the McMinnville UFO festival. Um, but yeah, I heard, I heard South Southern California is pretty, pretty nice. It is nice. It's been a long time there. Uh, we actually got, uh, we have a UFO festival and my wife and I are attending in Cedar city, Utah in hmm. June. It's kind of a camp out type of symposium. Oh, nice. So yeah, we're, we're That'll definitely into that. Um, well, Michael, again, your book, uh, Identified Flying Objects, a multidisciplinary scientific approach to the UFO phenomenon. Uh, fantastic. Very interesting. To I mean, it, it just baffles me that nobody really has had this kind of thought pattern to this. There's been yet. the idea, as I published this and been talking to people, there's quite a few Is that it? have done this in, in various ways or okay. proposed this. A lot of it's been science fiction. Sure. Um, but and I, and I think I classified the science fiction ones, but nothing that took the scientific base approach yeah, like, to this thesis. Well, as That's, George Knapp told me uh, a few weeks ago, that he's seen this theory tossed around, but never mm -hmm. presented by someone with these credentials and with with this approach, with this multidisciplinary right. scientific approach. So it is it is different in those respects. And George Knapp would know. He guys, would know. Guy's yeah. been around he's, for a while. He's been doing this for some time. Yeah. I, that, we've been trying to get him on the on the podcast, but I don't uh, I don't know. I just watched that documentary, uh, Hunt for Skinwalker, and oh sure. And we've been up there to that area, and just um, yeah, Utah in general is kind of a hot spot for UFOs. Yeah, in top of the base. So yeah, weirdly that. enough. Anyway, sir, thank you for your time. Yeah, thank and, you. Uh, close it's gates. Awesome. You know, hopefully you guys enjoyed that um, as much as I did actually perform the interview. It was, I was really glad we were able to, to just be personable and hook up face-to-face -face instead of through Skype. Um, just sitting in his office, uh, looking out over the mountains of Butte and, and listening to his career and his uh, book and his future career, where it's going to go, and, and all of his thoughts and insights. Uh, just amazing. It was an amazing time. I'm glad it worked out, and I hope, Michael, that in the future uh, our paths cross again. It would be um, it would be my honor. So we're going to go ahead and close this episode out, but uh, before that, I mentioned in the intro that he, uh, amongst everything else that he's got going on, he's actually got a side band that he does too. Um, so it's kind of neat, you know, the different hobbies that, that, that kind of keep, uh, keep Michael entertained. So we're going to go ahead and close the episode. And we're going to leave you with a song called Montana Sunshine by the Red Mountain Band. Close gates. I don't need no one to save me. I want to set my spirit free. Let the winds of change blow on by and say, say la vie. Take a trip up to a mountain top or down. To the sea But somewhere in between I know I'll find out What it all means to me
that I will ever know.